One quick message before I start the show. You can find all the links and resources for this episode by visiting the show notes on rickyrichards.com. If you enjoy this episode, do consider subscribing on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you're feeling particularly generous, you can help me to grow the show by leaving a review on iTunes. For anyone who does subscribe, review or share, thank you. I appreciate it. Now let's get into the show. Welcome to Ricky Richards Represents, the show where I talk tips for success with leading figures of creativity and innovation. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the show. Today we have a very special guest on, someone that I invited on to tell me more about one of my all-time design heroes. Naomi Games is the daughter of Abram Games, one of the most influential British graphic designers in the history of graphic design. Abram was born in Whitechapel here in London on the 29th of July 1914 and passed away in 1996. Most notable of his many pieces of work was created for the British government as the official war poster artist of World War II where he created over 100 posters, many of which going down in design history. On top of this, he also worked for some of the biggest brands in the world, as well as creating many uncommissioned pieces that looked to provoke and inform the masses about meaningful causes. His work has inspired people like me, and no doubt many others, to pursue the art of design. To talk to us about her father's amazing story, and answer many of my questions about this great man, Naomi, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. No worries at all. How are you, first and I'm foremost? I'm getting warmer, thank you. It's bloody <laughs> cold out there. That is uh, London in the winter. It's always a bit, uh, a bit, a bit groggy. Just for people actually listening to this, this is a little bit of a, a special episode in that we've actually got a few different sound bites that we're going to play as we're going through the course of the interview just to set the scene for Abram and his life and some of the things that he would have heard during the uh, times that we're actually talking about. I'm speaking to you from the cabinet room at 10 Downing Street. This morning, the British ambassador in Berlin handed the German government a final note stating that unless we heard from them by 11 o'clock that they were prepared at once to withdraw their troops from Poland, a state of war would exist between us. I have to tell you now that no such undertaking has been received and that consequently this country is at war with Germany. I thought we could start off, obviously your father was born the day after World War I was announced. World War Two. Oh, sorry, World War One. You're right. Yeah. <laughs> and so he would have been about four or five when World War One ended and uh, roughly 25 at the start of World War Two. Uh, and it's kind of fascinating, albeit extremely unfortunate, that he was born during that time and that, you know, that was the experiences that he had. And I was wondering if you could share some of the early experiences that he had and maybe how it changed his outlook on life. Well, he was a first-generation Londoner and um, his parents had to escape um, anti-Semitism from Russia and Poland, so they... His his father was in the Russian Imperial Army, actually. He was a photographer in the Russian Imperial Army. And um, they settled in Whitechapel in London. And his father was a photographer. Um, so he, I, he didn't really experience much 
of the First World War, I don't think, but it was more the Second World War that was influenced him. So obviously during the Second World War, this was something that I, I thought I'd bring up if the opportunity arose. I, I don't think the Holocaust became aware until after the war. Am I right in saying that? And obviously he had Jewish heritage in, in, his, in his background. Um, am I right in saying that? Yes, he was definitely Jewish and, right. and, and traditionally Jewish, and also, he was an Orthodox Jew, right. but not ultra Orthodox. Um, yes. And so and, dur- during the war, were they familiar? That did they know that the atrocities were going on? I don't think anyone realised the extent of how what was going on. It was very difficult, but I can talk about that later. Of course, yeah. Um, <laughs> So one of the things that I wanted to touch on before we delved into lots of the different work that he produced over his lifetime was his actual creative process, because when people Google his work now, I encourage people to go and do so. Thank you. Um, it's really uh, punchy. It's extremely visually distinctive. It's, uh, you know, it grabs your eye straight away, but it has a really like, visceral texture to it that is very rarely uh, replicated with the work of today. And obviously it was very different times and so I was just wondering if we could maybe dig into his creative process and I know that there's a fantastic story about the full stops and so I thought maybe you could talk about that also. Um, my father's had this motto which he developed very early on when he was a teenager really um, of maximum meaning, minimum means. In other words, um, everything had to be pared down to its essential elements and he he, i quote here maximum power of maximum power of individual comment expressed in minimum terms um and he saw himself more of an engineer than a poster designer than an artist um he was um, very adept at using the airbrush his father because he was a photographer taught him how to use the airbrush from an early age, he he was sort of born with an airbrush in his mouth, really. And um, it was a tool for photographers originally. And Abram had three airbrushes. And um, he was so good at using the airbrush that he often signed his checks with the airbrush. <laughs> he was a terrible show-off, my dad. Can, can, can I ask, just before you uh, proceed, why would photographers have an airbrush? To... It was it was designed for photographers basically because um, at the beginning of photography there was no color photography, so you would airbrush color onto photographs, bromide photographs, and you would also airbrush people out of history. You'd touch up with the airbrush, and it was because of his father that he became very skilled at using this tool, and he continued to use to use it through most of his life until the late. 1950s, early 60s, when he changed his style to compete with the colour photographic posters that were coming from the America. Um, you want to know about the full stop? Of course, yeah. Sounds It's a fantastic story. Um, everything had to be maximum meaning, minimum means, and it had to be very simple. All his designs had to be simple, so simple that children understood his designs. So he worked in in a very cold studio in our family home and um, he had three kids and we had lots of friends and he had lots of friends and everybody used to come into the studio if they could stand the cold. 
And the work would be on the easel. And he would ask us kids, what does this mean to you? We'd look at a poster and we'd say, oh, it's this, that and the other. And he'd say, well, what else does it mean? And we'd go, blah, blah, blah. And we'd be very disinterested in his work. I never appreciated his work until I looked at it all in one piece after he died. Um, and um, we didn't really realise that he was a good artist. <laughs> we, yeah. we kind of grew up with it, so we didn't appreciate it. Did you? Did you guys yourself have an artistic streak? Yes, yes. I. We all. Went, he. He hated art schools and wouldn't allow any of his children to go to art schools. But in the end, we all fought for for it and we all managed to go at some point but the the poster was on the easel and he was one of the few designers who worked entirely on his own and um he was very proud of that because everything he did was his own work it wasn't the work of an assistant it was his work and he would do rough designs on a layout sheet and little thumbnail sketches because he always said that if ideas don't work an inch high, they'll never work. And when he, when we, the children, understood what he was doing, that was great. If children understood his work, it was simple enough. If we didn't understand it, he'd tear it up and start again. But if we understood what he was talking about, he would do the artwork he did all his own artwork and then sign his signature he was very proud of his name and put a full stop after it because it was a statement it was his own work full stop and there's a story that I often tell um, that we the three of children were, were with him when he was dying and we were round his bedside and we drank lots of whiskey because my father liked whiskey. We drank a hell of a lot of whiskey <laughs> while he was dying. And um, I said to him jokingly, Daddy, do you want a full stop on your gravestone? And he said, yes, and he's got one, which is unusual because it's Abram Game's full stop on his <laughs> gravestone. And where, if people wanted to visit that, where... where I don't think you'd no. want to visit a grave. <laughs> <laughs> But he also designed his and my mother's gravestone. Well, that's it. I think that's true of a few different designs. Yeah. I, I believe Paul Rand did the same. Paul Rand, I don't think he designed it, but I think someone else designed it in his honour. But it's a lovely two-block yeah. um, gravestone. Yes, a lot of there's a lot of funky gravestones. <laughs> <laughs> it, um, it does remind me of a thing that I used to do. I, I've got a little sister. She's 20 years younger than myself. And I used to, when she was maybe about three years old two and a half three she'd only just started talking and I used to show her commercials on on my laptop and ask her what she thought and I remember showing her the Sony Bravia bouncy balls commercial and I was like what do you think that was and she went colorful you know and, and that was what the that whole was ad good enough yeah, yeah and and it showed the power of the simplicity which is something that your father was uh, yeah so proud proud of the fact that that was one of his core philosophies just on that, was there any other philosophies that he used to live by other than the, the, his work ones? He used to say a lot of stuff. And one of his, one of his um, quotes was, for a man of my talents, I'm very modest. <laughs> That's quite funny. A bit of an oxymoron as yeah. well. <laughs> by the turn of the 20th century, the era of mass armies and industrial war had dawned. 
when the British Army's deployment to South Africa in the Boer War revealed a worrying lack of young men fit enough to join the army, the National Service League and some politicians lobbied for the introduction of compulsory military training. The League's leadership included well-known soldiers, celebrities like Lord Roberts and Robert Baden-Powell. The creation of the Boy Scouts was for them the second-best option, helping create a pool of militarised youth. When the First World War began in 1914, the long-standing establishment reluctance to introduce conscription was still powerful. Uh, going into the kind of world, the World War II and the era where he became so prevalent, your father was commissioned as the official poster artist. Uh, and this was a time when any able-bodied man between the ages of 18 and 41 was eligible for conscription. And uh, obviously your father was relieved of this to some degree because he was contributing as a poster artist. Uh, what was his opinion of the war at the time? And, and can you explain some of the context of, the, of his work and what impact it had? Um, first of all, my father was very proud of being a Londoner. And he was very proud of his religion. He was Jewish and he believed in the war. He thought he knew what Hitler yeah. was capable of. And um, he wanted to be in the infantry and he wanted to fight. But they knew that he was a, an artist, a poster artist, and, they, and the powers that be wanted him to be... Um, to draw maps... And he said he didn't want to draw maps. He wanted to be a soldier. And after a lot of persuasion, he managed to get them to send him to um, the barracks and he became um, a soldier, an infantryman. And whilst he was in the barracks, he began to realise that there was no colour in the in the you've mentioned colour, there was no colour in the barracks and there were just black and white diagrams on the walls, instructional black and white diagrams telling soldiers to be careful of how they clean their weapons and um, not to talk. And my father realised that it would be great if the barrack room walls were also um, an art gallery. And he formulated a memorandum in his head and wrote it all down and he entitled it Army Poster Propaganda and submitted it to the War Office and he said in this memorandum that um, what was needed for the soldiers were instructional educational posters on how to look after their weapons, how to... Uh, take care of their hygiene, how they mustn't talk, um, how they mustn't gossip. And besides, um, it would, you know, it would be great entertainment for them to see and, and they'd appreciate some design and, and, and art on the walls. Um, anyway, the, the, um, his superiors looked at this memorandum and ignored it basically and just filed it away. And then a year later, um, he was summoned to the war office in Whitehall and and um, they, he was told that the person, the clerk, he was a clerk who designed posters before, um, had had to move on and they needed a poster designing f for the Royal Armoured Corps. 
and could he do it? And um, that was the first of 100 posters for the army. And then he he designed, they, they realised what an effect he was having. And um, after a year of working in the war office, um, he went to his superiors and said, can you find the memorandum I wrote a year ago? Can you dig it up? And they looked at it and they said... Um, Okay, we'll we'll do an experiment. This will just be experimental, unprecedented in the army, and um, you can design the kind of posters that you think are necessary for the army. And um, if the experiment doesn't work after six months, go back to your unit, and no, nothing more would be said. And he said, "Great," and he embarked on um, army poster propaganda for the army because there was propaganda for the civilians, but there was nothing for the army except black and white diagrams, really. So um, he, after the war ended, I mean, he counted up the posters and he designed about 100 posters for the war and maps and cap badges and book covers and amazing. And then he was um, recognised for this in 1942 and made an, an, the only ever official war poster artist. There hasn't been another one since. Yeah. Yeah, wow. I mean, that's mm. quite an honour. Yeah, but it's a lay long story about the war. <laughs> <laughs> no, there's two things, I, well, things I wanted to dig into because as a Brit myself, obviously when I, I, I'm i immersed to some degree in British music and I understand British heritage and the things which, which are typically British, but it feels to me culturally like if a war happened today that it would take something quite spectacular in order to galvanise the country around uh, kind of our British national identity versus, say, America, where people are very patriotic. You know, was part of Abrams' philosophy in order to galvanise people with this work? I mean, how was it psychological as well as visual for him, do you feel? He said that he... I wind, This is a quote from Abrams. I wind the spring and the public will have the spring released in its mind. So that when he did a poster, it would be like a, a visual puzzle, and you'd have to work it out. But it would be very simple. It would be a simple puzzle, but you'd have to be quite bright to work it out. And if you, yeah. didn't, if you didn't work it out on one level, you'd appreciate it for its colour and its form. Yeah, there was the, even the London Underground one, which I'm sure we'll talk about, but... One train every ninety seconds, and it's it's a, a revolution and a half of a you know a circle. And a, yeah, and it, and it, and I was just like, that's so you know, it's so simple, it's so, so beautiful, it's so elegant. Yeah. Um, and only two colours. Yes, and also talking about the war, whether this is true or not. But I listened to a video and talking about your father's work, and it was said that Churchill wasn't so fond of some of his work. Um, well, Churchill wasn't fond of. Um quite a lot of things I think that was that was socialist you know he, he, yeah. he wasn't too keen on that but there was a story when Abram designed um, a poster for your Britain fight for it now in 1942 and he had an architectural building he, he used he designed three posters for your Britain fight for it now and he used the Finsbury Health Centre designed by Bertolt Lebeckin and juxtapose it with um, a, a, a child in the background um, in a slum so that you'd have... The soldiers would know what they were fighting for. They would fight for a new Britain. 
Uh, just to clarify on that, juxtapose for people that maybe aren't aren't so familiar with design language, just be, basically means kind of uh, side by side. Yeah, paired with, paired with yes. to, to some degree. Um, but um, yes, yeah, so this poster was on the walls um, in in an exhibition um, in Harrods which was a strange place to have an exhibition during the war. But but the war office put on an exhibition of war posters. So you have people like Henry and, and um, Pat Keeley, colleagues of Abrams, and you'd have all the posters, Robin Day as well, um, and they'd be stuck on the wall with drawing pins. And this exhibition was opened by um, the Minister of Labour, um, Sir Ernest Bevan, and he saw this poster of... Um, the little boy in the background um, against the Finsbury Health Centre, beautiful building it was, um, is, still is, and um, he was horrified and he took it off the wall and took it straight to Churchill and Churchill was furious and said it was distorted propaganda, disgraceful libel. And the reason he said that was... Um, he wrote a memorandum about it, which we actually have a copy of, and he's, he said that the boy in the background has rickets, so he had bow legs. He was a little child and he, he had bow legs. But Abram had done his research, and he always did his research for these posters, and um, he knew that rickets was known as the English disease abroad, and that... Um, there was such a thing as rickets in Britain. And um, the poster was banned and pulped, and very, it was very rare now. And it was designed, the, the Your Britain poster was designed for the Army Bureau of Current Affairs, which Churchill also got rid of, because ABCA, the Army Bureau of Current Affairs, was for a, an educational place centre for soldiers to learn about the war it was a very important institution really so they it educated the soldiers it, it's quite it's quite incredible the way a visual can provide such a, a a punch that it can give someone a visceral reaction enough to want to tear it down well whether you liked his work or you didn't the fact that it got noticed was very important to Abram. He was thrilled to bits. You didn't have to like the work. It, it had to give the message and it had to give it very quickly and efficiently. And so if you noticed his posters and you were furious with them, then at least that you noticed them. It reminds me of a tangent, uh, which isn't related, but I'll share it anyway. And it was, I interviewed a lady called Susan Black, who was uh, severely... Abused and molested as a child, and she actually painted the story of her abuse through thirty absolutely spectacular images, all of which were super graphic and and really shocking. And but she would always say that when this abuse is spoken about, it's never shares the same kind of uh, reaction as someone actually viewing it. And whilst this is a completely different context, uh, I can completely see the the relationship there. This is the National Programme from London. The first news, copyright reserved. At the end of this news, please stand by for a very important announcement. It will tell you of certain adjustments of BBC wavelengths affecting broadcasting throughout the United Kingdom as from that time onwards. 
These wavelength adjustments will result in less adequate reception for some listeners. Please take no alarm at this, as it results from purely technical considerations. Let me warn you again to stand by for this announcement at the end of this bulletin. Talking about, we've just spoke about his kind of war work, but I've, I've, I've read, and whether you'll tell me whether this is true, that he wasn't overly fond of commercial work in general. And despite this, he racked up quite a notable roster of prestigious clients from the likes of BBC, which he produced the very first ident for. Which was um, hated by the public. They were absolutely terrified of it. They... Well, I'm not. It, it looked quite uh, sinister, I have to say. But for anyone, well, they'd never seen anything move on television apart from people before. So, you know, it was terrifying. They 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 thought that the BBC were trying to hypnotise them. Yeah, please type in B- first BBC ident or World War uh, Two BBC broadcast and watch the the very first ident. It's it's a spectacular. Well, it's 1953 that ident, so it's after the war. Right, mm. but it is it all. Um, it is very hypnotic. It almost looks like a perpetual motion machine or something, but quite sinister. Um, so the, the likes of BBC, he also worked for the United Nations, London Transport, British Airways, Shell, the Financial Times, Guinness. And I'm interested to know why he didn't like working for uh, for clients in particular and if there was ever a time when his creative process was stifled to some degree by uh, client input. Because his work all looks... Today, as a poster artist, you're constantly having to take feedback and compromising oftentimes on your creative integrity. But... It doesn't seem like he ever did. He never compromised. Never compromised. But interestingly enough, um, I read some old love letters. I got hold of some old love letters of his that he wrote to someone before he met my mother. But during the war, she worked with him during the war, this woman. And he writes in one of the letters saying that church <laughs> has 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 banned my poster but if he wants me to change it i will because it's such a good poster so he would have compromised for churchill be, not because it was churchill but because he 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 thought the poster was very good and it should be out there so that was the only time i i ever heard that he would compromise abram was a socialist and he wanted to continue his work, his poster work after the war, and he wanted the posters to work in the interest of humanity for the power of good. And he wanted, that's what he thought would happen after the war, that the government would carry on commissioning posters to sell causes and educate rather than than sell products but it you know times were changing and um, also he had a family to support and he had to earn some money so he did have to join the commercial world but he never made any money um, as a designer at all and so you said you said earlier that he saw himself as an engineer i know that we intended to talk about some of his other projects later on but did he make his money elsewhere other than the design no. 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 <laughs> no way, no chance. No, he didn't. No, he, he he wasn't interested in money, really. I mean, we we all went to um, secondary modern schools. We didn't go to private schools. We, you know, we 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 weren't well off at all. He he was he came from a very poor background. 
he was a very good father. My parents were great, but um, he didn't. We weren't spoilt, and um, he was ethical, very ethical. He never did anything he didn't believe in. I was I was going to say because you you mentioned earlier about the fact that he had a, a, a Jewish upbringing or that he was Orthodox Jew to some degree within the Orthodox Jewish community from what documentaries I've watched, it's quite an insular group of people typically. I mean, North London is where a lot of the Jewish community re- uh, resides today. Was there a sense with him that was he ever a kind of Jewish community person or was he... Was he a, cause you say well, he, was he, so- believed, he believed in the traditions of Judaism and, and I think especially after the Holocaust and in respect to his parents who'd gone through anti-Semitism, he was very fervently... Religious, not not religious, but he 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 accepted Judaism, and um, he we won't go into what he thought about Israel, but he he um, he was a man of principle and um, strong, determined. Yeah, it's sorry to like dig into that territory, but it's just it's interesting because when somebody does something for such a wide group of people and your beliefs to some degree, um, you could argue that they separate they separate you from, from the mass. But during that time, I guess everyone's so galvanised and his beliefs were so strong that he, he was prepared to produce work that related to everyone. You're talking about the war? Yes. Well, the, you're talking specifically about liberation after the war. This is the festival. Something Britain devised halfway through this century as a milestone between past and future to enrich and enliven the present. A diverse place of serious fun and light-hearted solemnity, reclaimed from the bomb rack and the decay of years. Here in the heart of London. I think it transitions quite well into the next thing I was going to ask about, which is Abram's work regarding the Festival of Britain, because that was such a... uh, It was a British scientific technology, industrial design, architecture and technology celebration that had a home here in in London, but as you mentioned to me earlier, it was nationwide. And that affected everyone, and it was a real kind of galvaniser. how did his, you know, how did that come about? And also, what was his opinion of being so uh, broadly known for, for having done that? Anyone who was involved in the Festival of Britain, for starters, w- was made. If you were a designer, an architect, Henry Moore, sculptor, painter, lighting designer, if you designed dustbins for the Festival of Britain, <laughs> you, you, your career was made in the 1950. 50s, 1951. I mean, the Festival of Britain was commissioned, this emblem was commissioned in 1948 by the Council of Industrial Design. And it was a competition. And it was open to 12 designers who were invited to compete. And Abram won the um, competition. And 50 guineas he, he got. Copyright for, uh, Copyright um, was the crown. It was open 
copyright. He couldn't maintain the copyright, which really irked him <laughs> um, in a shame. And um, once he won this competition, and also he won the competition to design a stamp for the Festival of Britain. It was a 3P that later went up to 4P stamp. Um, he was He was made. He was now a professional designer and he was very happy with that and he, and work kept pouring in and did just have interest of the other designs that were submitted for that for that competition do they exist are they around yes you can see them all in the national archive really wow and i've written a book on it oh okay I, this <laughs> it's is it. called I sh- a symbol for the festival <laughs> i should have done my 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 whole hard research I, I actually uh, read alan kitchen's book from cover to cover prior to the interview my but, God. <laughs> but i was a little bit too busy to do so with abram's work i've but, written i've written five books on abram i'm writing a sixth at the oh, really and, and what's the <laughs> and si- that's it There's and no what's the sixth about it's about his his um war work little stories there because it's a very long period the, you know his his he did a hundred posters so there's a lot yeah. to write about. And I suppose, you know, it was a six year period World War Two, wasn't it? So I'm sure there was many shifts in in the way the things he was um, producing during that time. Or yeah, and there are lots of stories like the <laughs> fight for now the ATS blonde bombshell poster, another band poster. He had a reputation for band posters. Which he rather liked. Yeah, the bad boy he poster. The, yeah, he was, <laughs> he's very rebellious and he liked the controversy. <clears throat> so we've briefly touched on this already, but one of the most admirable facets of your father's work is that he often created work in response to what he wanted to raise awareness of. Uh, and in respect to this, uh, in respect to this, he was very much an activist, and his work lives on and continues to be influential to this day. Of his more sociable. Uh, posters, which which are some that have uh, gone down in history, but also had the biggest cultural impact. Well, little is known about the two posters he did for the Spanish Civil War. You you won't find yeah. them really. I mean, you don't know that he did those, but he did do two posters for the Spanish Civil War, and he he that was came from him. The impetus was his and he designed those posters for for humanitarian posters like that and for the posters he did after the um, liberation for the Jewish relief unit he designed three posters which were very haunting posters and and um, very difficult to live with those posters but um, they were they were noticed mm-hmm. they really weren't noticed um, he wouldn't charge. I mean, he did those gratis. He didn't charge. Most of the, I mean, a lot of the time he didn't charge. Um, and then in 1960, he was asked to design a poster for Freedom from Hunger for the United Nations um, World Health Organization. And that, I would say, was his most important poster, apart from the ones he did during the war. The thing which caught me is quite striking about that that visual in particular so i'm going to try and paint a picture through words for people listening it will not do it justice at all but it's the the silhouette of a, an individual uh, or half of his body and then the other half is supposed to represent a, a, a piece of co- uh, well half wheat, of, there's, a, there's a, a child and yeah. half his one side of his body has got ribs yeah and the ribs carry through to the other side of his body which appears wheat a wheat of corn yeah and 
unlike his other work, which you can very visually see the airbrush technique, it, the background to that image has an almost gunky kind of rough, painterly, painterly, yeah, yeah. yeah. because because. His style changed after that, and he, he after as I said before, after the late nineteen fifties, he didn't um, use the airbrush. Yeah, I, I wanted to for people listening to this just talk into something which I really, really believe in, and hopefully, just by talking about it, I can encourage a few more people to do it. And it's what I like to call Ponto projects within the ad industry. Sometimes people call it tactical, but. Um, with regards to social causes, I think that this is something that graphic designers should do more. And it's that there's constantly shifts going on culturally, things that we all believe in. And very often we don't have a voice, that, or we do have a voice, but we can't get our opinions out or they don't feel like they hold much weight. But one thing that graphic designers have a real power to do, which is to be responsive to a moment in time and to create something that really resonates with a lot of people. And there's numerous examples of this, some that I can kind of recall to memory, things like Labour Isn't Working, which was a poster done by Saatchi and Saatchi. Uh, there was the Hope poster that Shepard Fairey did during the Barack Obama campaign. Um, Ju- John Julien, did the, uh, who's a French illustrator, produced the Peace for Paris logo during the uh, Paris terror attack. And I just encourage anyone that's listening to this who is a creative artist of any kind that when there is a cultural movement that you really believe in to think about how you might depict that visually in a way that's going to provoke or uh, cause people to think or, or act on behalf of what it is you believe in. And uh, Abram is a, is a poster child <laughs> for that movement, really, that uh, to do work that you really believe in and, and hold it up. Well, he was a, a humanitarian, I think, really. Yeah. A humanist, not a human, but a humanist. He, was, he believed in the power of people and the power of posters. Moving on from posters, in actual fact, I wanted to just touch on, you've already mentioned he did produce stamps, but he also did do some other really interesting things, like he produced a coffee... uh, Coffee maker. Yeah, coffee maker. Stamps he considered to be miniature posters because he had to work on... They were small posters, but they had to be as simple as his posters were. They had to be clear... And I think just for people listening, within the graphic design community, stamps are kind of held up as a, uh, a quite a prestigious thing because they are such, to your to your point, they're miniature posters and they're very graphic and they need to convey very simply. And there's a whole world of people that are fascinated by stamp, obviously the stamp collectors, but um, yeah, being able to be a stamp designer is quite a prestigious thing. One of the greatest stamp designers we have is David Gentleman. Don't know if you. Uh, I'm actually not so familiar. No. I should. Uh, I should be. Look him up. He's. He used to be a student of Abram's at the Royal College of Art. Right. And Abram designed a stamp for Churchill for for, for the anniversary of his of his death. And um, he was beaten to the post by David Gentleman. <laughs> right, oh. <laughs> who did a very good stamp. And uh, so that was something I wasn't so familiar with. He taught and he had students. What was that, uh, the story of that? He taught one day a week for seven years at the Royal College of Art. And um, he was very, very tough on his students because he believed that the outside world was tough and if you couldn't cope with him, then you wouldn't be able to deal with with the outside 
you know, with clients, really. I mean, clients are tough and you have to... You have to... Um, Pull your finger out. Well, I like the fact, just for people that... Um, because... Very black and white, yeah, my Yeah, <laughs> ma- matter of fact, mm. and, and I think you're completely right, there's a whole speculative thing that millennials in particular are very spoiled and we have a lot of entitlement. But actually, even regardless of your skill level, it requires a lot of hard work, dedication and you know, chutzpah to kind of break... Chutzpah. 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 Is that, is that how you pronounce That's it? That's how you pronounce oh, it. Oh, God. Chutzpah. For years I've been saying it like that. So no, 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 nobody's corrected me, so thanks for well, doing so. Well, have you so. had someone Jewish on your program? Oh, right. Is it Jewish, is it? It's a, it's a Yiddish word. Oh, yes. I did Chutzpah. not know that. Bloody hell. Yep. <laughs> That's a British word. <laughs> it is now. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I've got a few more questions for you, but mm. before I do so, I just want to say it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on. Thank you. Uh, to talk about your father's stories. And uh, before I ask you some final questions regarding designers and that kind of stuff, um, what's one thing that, for the designers listening out there, that you would want them to take away from your father's experiences? Like, what what's a key takeaway lesson, do you feel? Well, it's not up to me to tell people what to take away. I mean, if you're inspired by his work, that's fantastic. Um, But um, when my father was a great educator and a mentor of students, he was he was he always had time for students. And he would often and in later life, he would go and lecture or talk about his work. And I do that now. I go to colleges and I talk about his work. And um, he always ended his lectures with the three C's, and these are qualities he considered essential for designers. And they are curiosity. You always have to have curiosity. You have to have courage, the courage of your convictions, so that you know when you present a piece of work that that's the correct one to present. You shouldn't dilly-dally. You should just do be very positive and have one design and show it. So courage courage to face a client and you should always have concentration so curiosity courage and concentration and then he would always add it to that never forget the cash and the checks <laughs> that's that's uh, an amazing uh, yeah a, a incredible takeaway and i'm sure yes yeah, <laughs> one that i'll be stealing the three the three c's <laughs> the three c's yeah um just some quick fires for you. Uh, could you name some of the books that you've written on your father's work or things that people should check out? Yeah, I mean, if they can find them now. Um, I've written a, a monograph, a big monograph, and um, I, that's out of print now. <laughs> um, it's called Abram Gaines, but you can find them all on the website, and we've got a website, www.abramgames.com, and they're all listed there, and you could always find them on eBay or Amazon. You can pay. You can pay. Get some, definitely. Get some, yeah. If if you love his work, look after them. Um, I've got like an original Paul Rand book that's you know, and I'm just, I look after it for. Uh, well, Paul Rand and Abram were great friends, and really? they were born in the same year, and they died in the same year, within a few months of each other, and they they they. Paul lived a parallel life to Abram because he was a poor Brooklyn boy. And my father was a poor East End boy, and they they were like brothers, those two. Sonny, so Paul Rand is another one of my heroes. George Lois, who's a very brash, kind of American uh, art director. Um, 
Yeah, and I feel like there's there's massive commonalities between these individuals in that they are very strong-willed and uh, will put up a fight for what they believe in. Absolutely. Very determined. And sure of themselves, sure of their own worth. I've got one more question for you before I ask it um, and explain where people can get hold of you. Um, I'm going to pass the show over to our producer, Adam, who's going to share a few actionable insights for our listeners today. Well, thank you for joining us today, Naomi, and thank you for the wealth of insight you shared with us. Here's the five actionable insights I wrote down as you were talking. Number one, if a child understands your work, it gives it great power. Number two, however people react to your work, the important thing is it's noticed. Number three, if you want to sharpen your design skills, then try designing a stamp. Look up David Gentleman for inspiration. Number four, don't forget the three C's. Be curious, be courageous and concentrate. And number five, never forget the cash and the checks. Thank you, Adam. I really appreciate the insights. Hopefully everyone can take something away from that. Uh, before you go, firstly, where can people get hold of you? And do you have any ask for the audience? That's a strange thing to ask, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> you, get hold of um, you, can, you can email me um, through abramgames.com. Perfect. And, and is, is your father's work ex- existing? It, my it? father's work has been exhibited since many times, but in 2003 we had an exhibition at the Design Museum and it's been touring and it's now resting. But um, if anyone wants to exhibit the work, they're very welcome to get me through abramgames.com. Um, but also, my father as I said before, was an educator and he wanted students to be inspired and to learn from his work. So what we we look after his archive and you're very welcome to get hold of me through avongames.com and you can come to North London and visit the archive. But in the archive, we have his working drawings for most of the posters after the war that he did. He, d- he did in total 300 posters. He designed lots of stamps, emblems, um, book covers. He, he, he was um, art director of Penguin Books for a year, doing colour covers. Um, and you can see his thought process in these fantastic sketches that we have. So you're very welcome. If you want to make an appointment, you can come visit. And I will give you Coffee in his corner, <laughs> coffee maker. Wow, that's uh, something Which I'm I, I'm not going to pass up on that as an opportunity. <laughs> so if anybody wants to join me, um, I've got one final, 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 final question for you. And it's we've talked a lot about your your father's work, but maybe this is something. Maybe it's his advice. Maybe it's your own. And I always like to ask every guest if they have one piece of advice uh, for people to live a, a more fulfilled and meaningful existence. What would it be? It's quite a deep one, but it's quite a deep one, and I'm not qualified to give other people advice. And and I will quote Cicero, who says, "No one can give wiser advice than yourself." But I would also add to that that the way to get through life is to smile a lot. There we go. I like that a lot, even on a cold freeze. <laughs> <laughs> Naomi, thank you so much thank for coming you. on and sharing thank the you story. Very much. It's, it's been an absolute thank you, pleasure. Ricky. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to subscribe and share. 
I'd also like to invite you to an ongoing project called the Move Me mailing list. If you enjoy the show, I'm confident you'll enjoy this newsletter. It contains links to all the great content I've uncovered each month, along with insights of any interesting opportunities I've discovered. You can subscribe to this by visiting my website at rickyrichards.com. A special thanks to Frankie Byrne and James Utting. They're the tech heads that make this show possible. The intro music was composed by Dom Stores Fox. And thanks again to Reese Chapman for introing me to Lou and Lizette, the wonderful folks at Factory Studios in London, where this show is recorded. Finally, wherever you are in the world, I hope you have a great day and keep creating. Until next time, bye for now. <laughs>